Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 1. Reading from verse 4, the 120 is in the upper room, gone there as Jesus commanded. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. This is what he's telling them to do, to go to the upper room. Which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. And then, of course, you know what happened in chapter 2, or chapter uh, Two, yes, uh, let's just read the first couple of verses. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, for believers everywhere the world over, Pentecost was a defining moment in the history of the early church. Most Christians accept, recognize that that was the day whenever the church was birthed and the church officially, could we say, came into being. And so God was doing a new thing. God was initiating something new through the Holy Spirit. So this was the origin of something. This was the commencement, the beginning of something new that God was doing. However, even though that is true and we fully recognize that, however, there's another side to this coin. And the other side of it simply is this that not only was it the commencement of something new, but it was the consummation and the completion of something old, something that God had already been doing since the Garden of Eden. And so I want to take you back a little bit, and I want to show you a good part of the reason why Pentecost happened and why it's important and why the Spirit of God is important for each of us tonight to understand and to know and to receive in our lives. Now to help you to grasp this, to make it a little bit clearer, I want to quote uh, something from J. Sidlow Baxter, who's now gone to the glory, a great old preacher of old, and he laid out a little thing that helps us understand that, and I simply could not improve upon uh, these couple of points, so I'll just give them to you. First of all, he talks about uh, that period of man in the Garden of Eden, from man was in the garden until man was put out of the garden. And that Edenic period,
period was God with man. And, and what a marvelous moment that must have been. If we could have been there, I, I would love to, to eavesdrop on the conversations. Because the Bible says that God came to Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder how many times he met with them in the garden. Perhaps hundreds of times. Cool of the day may mean the evening. It could mean the morning and the evening. But whatever time of the day it was, they met and it was up close and personal. It was very, very intimate. Very, very close fellowship. And I don't know what God said. The Bible doesn't make us privy to that. But I wonder that he explained to Adam about his creation and how he brought about his creation. I wonder what the conversations would flow like during all of that period. It must have been wonderful because, remember, Adam without sin had an incredible intellect, an incredible mind to think through and to, and to rationalize and to look at and to understand. And, and, and no doubt, I'm sure God explained things to him and showed him things. And so that whole period until man rebelled and fell into sin and had to be put out of the Garden of Eden, that whole period we could say was God with man. And then if we fast forward somewhat, you come to another period of history in the Bible, and this is called the patriarchal period. And the patriarchs were great men of God in the Old Testament. You think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you think of other great men, of course, like Moses and, and so forth. And, and these were great, mighty men of God. And God would come to these men. And this wasn't so much God with man, because now there was a separation between God and man. But this was God to men. God still wanted to come to man. But because of this gulf of sin and separation, he would come to him in different ways, in special ways, particularly to these patriarchs. Uh, sometimes he would come, uh, sometimes he would send an angel. Uh, he would dispatch an angel to come and talk to them. Sometimes he would come to them through a dream or through a vision. And sometimes there's, there's special occasions in during that period whenever Christ himself would come and that's why oftentimes you see the angel of the Lord came. And you think of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And most theologians believe that was an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And so these were uh, different times and God was coming in a different way. But he was coming to men. And he was revealing to them and, and speaking to them and, and having relationship with them but in a different way. And then if we, again, fast forward a little bit more history of uh, mankind, uh, particularly now the nation of Israel, uh, we see what was called a theocratic period. Now remember, uh, this was a time whenever you remember that God brought the Hebrew people out of captivity in Egypt. Now, you understand I'm skipping parts because it's too much to go into. But he brought them out of captivity out of Egypt. They crossed through and dry ground through the Red Sea, brought them to Sinai Mountain where they got, Moses gave them the law. God gave Moses the law. Moses delivered the law to them. 
And, uh, and the law, of course, was in three parts. There was a civil law, which was now to govern their whole lives as, as, a, as a nation, as a people. He had forged them into a nation. And there would be civil laws, like we have civil laws today, how to deal with one another if things happen between them. And then there was a ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was because he had raised up a priesthood among them. Uh, and the priesthood, there would be certain rules and regulations that they would have to do so that the people could approach God because they could only approach God in special ways and special times and they had to come through a priest and they had to bring a sacrifice. And so there was laws laid out for that, very prescribed laws, very detailed laws called the ceremonial laws. And then, of course, then there was the third part of the law, which is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, which we all know to this day, the moral law. And... In this period, of course, God was dealing with them and he was among them in the sense that he said, build me a tabernacle because I want my presence to be with you. And so God got them to build this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And they had the ticket everywhere they went all through their journeys in the wilderness to get to the promised land. They had to take this tabernacle with them. And whenever they would, whenever that great pillar of cloud by day and the great pillar of fire by night, whenever it would stop, they had to stop and they had to set up camp. It maybe was for a few nights, it maybe was for a few weeks. But whenever those pillar of cloud and fire stopped, they had to stop. They had to set up the whole tent. And it must have been a wonderful sight because think there's two million people in the wilderness, and this little tent in the middle of two million people, and they were all, set all seated all around this tent in all their tribes, and all designated certain places around the whole tabernacle. And if you had been up a mountain looking down, it must have been some amazing sight. And God's presence was in the midst of them, right in the midst, had to be in the middle of all the whole camp of Israel. And so God, in that sense, was ruling them theocratically. In other words, he was in charge. He was ruling. He was making the rules. He was making the regulations. So that was called the theocratic period. But then, again, fast forward in history. The children of Israel, they're now into the promised land. And they're not doing too well. They're compromising. They're worshipping false idols. Their enemies all around them has taken them. And hold them to ransom and holding them captive and defeating them. And so there's a long period of history uh, where, they're, where they're in servitude, where they're in captivity. And then they cry unto God. And God in his mercy comes to them and raises up a man or a woman, a judge they were called, like Samson or like Deborah. And these judges delivered them from the hand of their enemies. And, and then sometimes that judge maybe ruled or reigned for another 30 or 40 years and then the people would go back into idolatry. And then after a few years, they'd cry unto God. And that whole thing would start all over again. That lasted for hundreds of years. It was a difficult period in Israel's history. But you see, God was speaking and working through men this time. And through women. They happened to be a judge. God was working through them and bringing deliverance and bringing them out of captivity and, and bringing them victory in the midst of their enemies. And then a little bit later on, we find that they cried unto God and says, give us a king. We want to have a king like the other nations around us. They were tired of theocracy. Now they wanted a monarchy. And so they says, give us a king. And so they got a succession of kings. And the kingdom became divided. 
Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel was ten tribes, Judah was two tribes. And it became divided. And all of Israel's kings were bad. Some were very, very bad. And there was only a few of Judah's kings that were actually good, that were upright and righteous men. And so that was a long period of history where these kings was really bad. And during that period, when you get to the end of the judges, you'll find that Samuel was the last judge and he was the first prophet. And God raised up prophets in the midst of the kingdom. And God was working through these men and speaking to the kings and speaking to the nation at the same time. And God would speak to them and they would speak to the kings and they would speak to the nation because they were prophets. They were foretellers as well as foretellers. Are you still with me? So God was speaking through men. And so God was with man, then God to men, then God among men, then God through men. And then when you come into the end of the Old Testament, there's that 400 years of silence when God doesn't speak at all. No prophets, nobody speaking. Heavens are as brass. God's not speaking. And then suddenly the angel comes. And he comes to Mary. And Christ comes. And now this is God as man. God as man. And up to now, this is as close as God has ever become to man because he himself has taken on human flesh. His son has come as a human being, born of a virgin, became a man like us, took upon himself, came in the form of, took upon himself human flesh. So God is coming as man. That's the incarnation. And we see that life of Christ from the cradle all the way to the cross. And then we see from the tomb all the way to his ascension and from his ascension till his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. But during that whole 33 and a half years, God came as man. And so you see, down through all those ages, all those hundreds of years, all those thousands of years, from that moment in the Garden of Eden when that relationship was broken, God was determined. He wouldn't give up on man and he was determined that that relationship would become even greater than it ever was with Adam. And you get to the place in the Gospels where God comes himself as man. And that's as close as he possibly could be then. But it wasn't close enough for God. He wanted to come even closer. And that's when you come to Pentecost. And at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, this is God in man. Not just with man or to man or among men or through men or even as man, but God in men by his Spirit. And that's what God was doing. And that's one of the great truths of Pentecost. 
that Almighty God wanted such an intimate and close and personal relationship with every one of His children that He would send His Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to live in us, not even with us, but in us every single day of our lives. And that's the wonderful, wonderful thing. And Jesus talked about this in John chapter 14. In verse 15, he said to his disciples, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, this is speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Believe it or believe it not. You and I tonight as believers in 2011, 2000 after, years after Christ has gone back to the glory, we are in a far, far, far better position than those disciples ever were. Do you really believe that? Because this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings us into a place where we are in a far better position than if we had Jesus standing with us here in the flesh. Now, there's no question we would love to see Jesus in the flesh. And we can't wait to see him in the flesh. And one day we will. But right now, Jesus said, it is expedient. It's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. Yeah, it's to your advantage, he said. It's expedient. It's for your advantage that I go away. Because if I go, he'll come. And he'll not just be with you. Like I am in the flesh, he will be in you. So we literally, as believers, we have the third person of the divine trinity living within us. We have the third... I'm not sure that we get it. I'm not sure that I fully get it. That is an amazing truth to think that God the Holy Spirit lives in you. And from that moment when that fellowship was lost in the garden to the day of Pentecost, God was determined that what he had begun in the garden he would complete in Pentecost. So God has moved from fellowship, which was in the garden, to filling in Pentecost. Acts 2.4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts, Ephesians 5.18, beg your pardon. Paul says, do not be filled with wine wherein is access, but be filled with the Spirit. A continuous filling. Somebody said we leak a continuous infilling, continually. You can ask the Holy Spirit, because He is God the Holy Spirit, you can speak to Him and you can ask Him to continually fill you. 
And in Genesis 2 and 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul or a living being. Now, this verse speaks specifically and individually of the creation of man, and it reveals to us one or two things. First of all, the specialness or the uniqueness of man. God breathed into man the breath of life of all of God's creation. Only man, as it said, that God breathed into him the breath of life. And this places man in a wonderful position. Places man in a position of superiority in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. What an amazing man he must have been. Without sin, without the limitations of sin, what a mind, what a spirit, what a perfect human being he was, of course, before the fall. And so there is a uniqueness about man, even after the fall, even today, of all of God's creatures, there is a uniqueness about us. There's a superiority of us over the whole animal kingdom. Do not believe this nonsense that we're just part of the animal kingdom. Evolutionists, Darwinism would like us to believe that. And it just puts us in that chain of animals. But when you read Genesis, you'll find that we're not in that chain at all. That we are uniquely made. And it goes on to say that we were made in the very image of God. Genesis 1.26. Made in the image of God. It says there, and we read it together in Genesis 2.18, that in, of all of God's creatures, nothing was found that was comparable to him. God created all these animal creatures. They all came past Adam. He named every one. And at the end of it, there was not found one among them. And the whole animal kingdom that was comparable to him that was fitting for him to have as a lifelong companion. The specialness of the human being. Of course then God created Eve, didn't he, from his rib and so forth. But notice this. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In the Hebrew that's plural. It's the breath of lives. See, another unique special thing about a human being is you're a tripartite being. Your spirit, 
your body and your soul. And with your body, your world conscious, you're conscious of the world around you because that's the seat of all of your senses. And when all of our senses, we are conscious of that which is around us. We can touch, we can see, we can hear, we can feel, we can smell. And with your soul, you're self-conscious. You can think, you can rationalize, you can decide, you can imagine, you can be creative. And with your spirit, you're God-conscious. We're the only creatures that can consciously, deliberately choose to worship Almighty God. Whenever the people said to Jesus, tell them to be quiet when they were shouting Hosanna, he says, listen, if they be quiet, the very stones will cry out. God can make the stones to cry out if he really wanted to, but he doesn't. He made us to do that. He made us solely as worshiping creatures unto him. So we are very unique and we are very, very special. And so when God breathed, into man the breath of life or lives. We were the crown of his creation, no matter how clever a chimpanzee is, no matter how smart a dolphin is, no matter how much of our DNA may be alike, there is a massive gulf between us. Intelligence and creativity, conscience, ability to worship God. God breathed into man the breath of life. There is an eternal consciousness that a human being's got that no other creature's got. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in our hearts. There's an eternal consciousness. In fact, we are, even though our, our bodies now are mortal, which means they're doomed to death, but our spirit and our soul is eternal. It will never, ever die and that's why a soul is so important because every soul on this earth that's ever been or ever will be will live forever in heaven or on hell for all eternity and so God breathed into man the breath of life whenever the Old Testament speaks of the Holy Spirit it uses a word, and, and the word means wind or breath. And the word is ruach, R-U-A-C-H, ruach. And ruach means wind or breath, but when it talks about the Holy Spirit, it's of course mentioned in a different dimension. And wind is one of the particular symbols of the Holy Spirit. There's oil, there's fire, there's lots of them, but wind is one particular, and we see that in the day of Pentecost, don't we? A mighty rushing wind. But in the Old Testament, that word ruach is used quite a lot. But there's another word that's used also, neshama, N-E-S-H-A-M-A-H, neshama. Now, Psalm 156 and 6 let everything that has neshama, breath, praise the Lord. You have within you 
neshama, and if he didn't, you wouldn't be sitting here tonight. You wouldn't be alive. But you also have the ruach, the Holy Spirit of God within you. And just as that neshama, that breath, keeps your physical body alive, the ruach of God keeps your spiritual life alive. Amen? By the way, these two words are used together in Job 33 and 4. It says, The Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, has made me, and the breath, the neshama of the Almighty, has given me life. Gives me life. And so there's something in these symbols that correlates to the Holy Spirit. Jesus in, in John chapter 20, he does something which is a little bit a little bit strange, a little bit odd. In John 20, uh, 19, this is one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, excuse me, Jesus came and stood in the midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when they had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. And as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Ah, that's strange, isn't it? They've never done that before. When it says he breathed on them, it, it, it's, it's quite deliberate. It's not like they were all standing around at close quarters and sometimes if somebody's standing pretty close to you, you can't help but feel their breath. But it's not that. He deliberately, consciously went to each one of them and breathed on them. Just the way you go up to a window pane. And breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Divided opinion. Hardly get two commentators to agree the same thing. Some say it was perhaps symbolic or even a prophetical sign. Old Testament prophets, they would do things, they'd break sticks, they'd cut beards, they would crawl through a hole in the wall, all, all kinds of things which was a, a prophetic sign to the nation, to people. So some say it was a prophetic sign about the Holy Spirit coming. Some said it was perhaps a foretaste, a token of the Holy Spirit who was to come, not many days from then, by the way. And so this was a kind of a foretaste. By the way, Jesus doesn't offer any explanation here. Neither do the disciples are to us, so we're just surmising what this may be. Some say it was his way of giving them some illumination and some understanding of, of what they had just come through. Because remember, these people were devastated because Jesus, the Messiah, was 
dead on a cross and buried in a tomb and life for them is over. Vision is gone. Dream is dead. So some say it was his way of enlightening them. So whatever happened, and we're not exactly sure, but this we do know. Something of the Spirit of Christ was passed from him to them. There was a holy transference, an invisible deposit. A deep and intimate exchange happened. He breathed on them. And we may never know till we get to the glory exactly why or what happened, but something happened. He did it for a purpose, didn't he? And all I can surmise, the best I can say to you now is, something happened at that moment. An invisible transference of something happened to their lives. Maybe it was a foretaste. Maybe it was a portent of what was going to, a token of what was going to happen not many days from then. Now consider this for a moment. Consider this. This is post-resurrection. From the moment Jesus was born from the womb of Mary, from that very first breath he took as a human being until his last breath on the cross as the Son of God, when he bowed his head, he gave up the ghost, it said. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last human breath. In all of that time, from the cradle to the cross, even though he was the Son of God, even though he was God in the flesh, he was a human being. And he still had to breathe that cool, clear Judean air into his lungs to exist. But now he's come in a resurrection body. He's come in a body that can walk through a wall. He's come in a body that can appear and disappear at will. He's come in a body at the Mount of Olives on the day of ascension when they all stood and watched and he just took off before them and just disappeared up through the clouds. No ordinary breath is filling those lungs now. The oxygen of heaven is in him. The life of the Spirit of God. The resurrection life. The Holy Spirit. The resurrection life of the Holy Spirit is now in Him. And He's breathing on them. Different breath for a different purpose. The day of Pentecost, we read it together. They're all in that upper room for ten days. And then suddenly, there came a sound of a mighty rushing wind. This is the Ruach of God. In the New Testament, it's called Numa. It's a Greek word, not a Hebrew word. It's Numa, which is where we get pneumatic from. A pneumatic drill is a drill that's governed by air. It's run by air, isn't it? Compressed air. 
It used to be solid tires in a car. And then the first tires with air in them were called pneumatic tires. But it's the same thing. And so this is God, this mighty rushing wind. This is almighty God. And He's breathing His Holy Spirit into the lives of those 120. And it comes as a sound of a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't just a little, well, maybe for God it was. But for them, it wasn't. It was a mighty rushing wind. And it filled all of them without exception. And they never were the same again. Sure they weren't. Once they were filled and touched by the Holy Spirit, in that one moment of time, their lives was radically and forever changed. They were never the same. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit of God, and we talk about Him coming to live within us, when you receive the Holy Spirit, God breathed upon you. Just the way when you were created, when man was created at the beginning, the very first humanity created at the beginning, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he stood up and became a living soul. Here is the new humanity, God's new creation. And God breathes into him his Holy Spirit and it becomes alive, a living soul. What a difference it makes. Your breath is important, isn't it? It's absolutely paramount. Can't live without it. As a believer, you can't live without the breath of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in us as much as we need breath in our lungs. We need spiritual air to breathe. To exist as believers. This makes us different. It's not religion. It's not some man-made concoction and rituals. It's the life of God in us. It's new life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Different than anything that's ever been before. Not only is our breath paramount, but it's personal. Each of us has to breathe for himself. I don't know if, I, I used to have a cousin, still have him because he's still alive today, but he used to live with us for a while at my mom's home and my dad's home. And he was very, very bad asthmatic. Seriously bad. I don't know how he's still living to this day. I've seen him so bad, I've seen him literally on his belly on the floor, gasping for air like a fish out of water. I was just a young boy seeing that. It was, it was frightening to see it. And as much as he was trying to breathe, I was trying to breathe for him. Do you ever see somebody choking? You're trying to breathe for them. And you can't. You only breathe for yourself. And this spiritual life of God that is within us, it's personal. Each of us has to have a personal spiritual life. Nobody can live it for you. Samuel and David are twins. Margaret and Christine, they're twins. 
And as much as they're alike in many, many ways, but they're two individual human beings. They can't breathe for each other. They've got to breathe for themselves. And so our, our, our spiritual life, there's a, a personal aspect of it. And 1 Corinthians 12, and, and from verse 12 onwards for a few verses, there, you see that Paul talks about the, the whole body of Christ, and he mentions the whole body, but he says your members in particular. He talks about the eye and the ear and the hand and so forth. Your members in particular. And so the Holy Spirit comes to each of us in particular, individually. Clifford said this morning, it's not a denomination. Even though we have a name outside the door and, and then there is the, the Elam Pentecostal movement, which is a big, big movement, but Pentecost is not a movement or it's not a denomination. It's an individual work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. It's also purifying. We need oxygen to cleanse our bloodstream. Purifies us. And the Holy Spirit works a purifying work in our lives. And that's why he is so easily grieved and vexed. Because he is pure and holy. He's called the Holy Spirit for a reason because he is absolutely holy and he recoils at anything that is unholy and it vexes his holiness. And all of us has done things that has grieved and vexed the Holy Spirit. Maybe we didn't think we did, but we did. Some of us did things that we knew that we did and we're convicted of it. Because we felt the Holy Spirit was grieved in our lives and in our hearts. Because He's like that. And when you think about Him being as the, as the beautiful, gentle dove, and so He's purifying. And so we need the air. It's paramount, it's personal, it's purifying. But we need the air to proclaim. Your vocal cords, your larynx, and all the vocal cords in there needs air. Needs air to cause the movement. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, Clifford said this morning, which is a very, very good point. Jesus said, to tarry there and you shall receive power. That was the one thing he told them you were going to receive. Didn't say you would get tongues. That came as a consequence of being there in obedience and the power came. But what was it for? What was the power for? What did he say? And you shall be witnesses unto me. The power was to proclaim him, to witness to him. To let men know about him. Wonderful speaking in tongues. Thank God for it. We love it. Do it in your personal life. Do it in church. Good. You can speak in tongues all you like. But if you're not a witness unto him. Then you miss the whole point of the Holy Spirit. Because the whole point of the Holy Spirit. Is to lift up Jesus. That's what his ministry is. Through us. 
to lift up the Son of God. That's what his ministry is. That's what he does. That's what he loves to do. That's who he is. To lift up the Son of God through us. And so he comes and he fills us that we may proclaim him and show forth him and lift up the Son of God. And whenever we lift up the Son of God in our daily lives, then the Holy Spirit is pleased because that's his ministry through us. Amen. And so when you go out tomorrow, wherever you go, whatever you do, if you're lifting up Jesus in your life and by your life and by your lip, if you're doing that, the Holy Spirit in you is pleased and he gives you the power to do that and to minister and to witness and to talk and to share and do all of those wonderful things that we should and we ought to do because that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, we should not be afraid of the Holy Spirit, certainly should reverence Him. But sometimes whenever you talk about the Holy Spirit, people get a little bit frightened. Especially if you talk about the Holy Ghost, as the AV does. It conjures up all kinds of things. But this is the second person, third person, beg your pardon, of the, of the Divine Trinity. God the Holy Spirit, nothing to be frightened about. Everything to receive and to welcome and to want and to desire. More of the Holy Spirit in our lives working through us to glorify Jesus in us. Amen? Would you just quietly stand to your feet, please? We're going to pray and we're going to ask God the Holy Spirit to touch our lives tonight. Maybe you've been feeling dry, maybe you've been feeling weary, tired. Maybe when you read the Bible, it's just like a blank book to you. Well, he's the author. Maybe you go to pray, heaven seem like brass. Maybe you're struggling over a habit, seems unbreakable. Holy Spirit is here to help us with all of these things. Because the thing that he desires most is that we live for Jesus and we glorify the Son of God. And he wants to empower us to do that. And to give us the strength and the grace and the power, his power in us to live a successful, victorious Christian life. So we're going to pray. We're going to ask God the Holy Spirit. I want you to ask God the Holy Spirit to fill your heart, your spirit, flood your soul, to quicken you, to make you alive, to bring new life into your spirit, to cause you to be thrilled at the very thought of Jesus, to become excited, enjoy what you've got in God, 
to live for Jesus in a fuller way, to have the power of God in your life to overcome all of those things in your life that wants to bind you and hold you back and stop you from being victorious. Well, God the Holy Spirit is here. He's in our midst tonight. He wants to touch your life. He wants to fill you and to bless you and to strengthen you and to equip you and to make you bold for Christ. Hallelujah. So let's pray. Maybe put your hand on your heart if you want to join in this prayer. Just put your hand on your heart. Father, I thank you for sending your Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I thank you that he's never left. That he is here continuously. And that he's here right now in our midst. And he wants to come and to fill us. And to bless. And to empower. And to touch us. Lord, I pray right now by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Touch your church tonight. Touch their spirits tonight. Lord, fill us afresh with the Holy Ghost on fire. Lord, fill us with power tonight to live for Jesus, to be overcomers, to be glorious believers in Christ, to lift up the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, that we may lay hands on people, that we may cast out devils if necessary, that see the sick healed, that see people rescued from the devil's claws in Jesus' name. Lord, you sent your Holy Spirit to empower every believer, no matter what denomination. Lord, you're not interested in name tags tonight. You're interested in every single believer to fill us full of the Holy Ghost and fire. So Lord, tonight by your Spirit, touch us right now. Fill our hearts with the Spirit of God, that we may live for Jesus continuously, that we may be in victory every day to the glory of God in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father God. You have not left us comfortless. You haven't left us like orphans. You've come and indwelt us, and we bless you for that. And so tonight, we thank you, Holy Spirit, because you are God the Holy Spirit. And help us not to grieve you. Help us not to do things or to say things or to look at things or to do things that would grieve you, Holy Spirit. That we may be living a holy and a clean and an honorable life that would glorify the Son of God in Jesus' mighty name. And we give you thanks and we praise you. Amen.